Welcome to Elsewhere. My name is Ian Ditchburn. I just wanted to start off by thanking everyone for the overwhelmingly positive response that we've had to our first episode. Within the first week, our pilot was up to nearly 100 listens from six different countries. That number is closer to 150 now, but has obviously tapered off as time's gone on. And I just wanted to personally thank everyone for sharing the show and for all the kind messages that I've received. Elena is a total badass, and I'm sure that she would feel vindicated knowing how many of you out there found her work valuable. So um, on my end, I've been working a lot lately. Maybe that's something that you can relate to. One thing that I've noticed as I've gotten older is that It's hard to make time for the people in my life that I necessarily want to. I've got a lot of old friends who I haven't seen in a while, and I also keep meeting new people who I wish I could get to know more. But working this much, it's been a challenge um, maintaining the friendships as well as I would like to. Also, part of traveling means that there's a lot of people out there in the world who I feel extremely close to, who I wish I could be closer to. So just know that if you're one of the people out there who's listening to this off of Facebook, um, if I have you on there, that means I probably think you're pretty cool. And just know that I wish we could hang out more. But for now, this is going to be the best I can do. This month's guest is another certified, globally experienced badass, which is always going to be the preferred type of guest for this program. Ram grew up between North America and Iran, and as such has a very interesting perspective on how those two worlds collide. He's a musician, an activist, and a survivor of real injustice, the details of which are unfortunately not too uncommon for some people living in that part of the world. And as you'll hopefully not notice, I was actually pretty nervous getting to interview him. Ram has spent plenty of time dealing with UN human rights commissioners, proper journalists, high-ranking government officials, so I felt pretty honored to get to spend some time with him. And as it turns out, he's actually a really cool guy, so I hope that you're happy with the end result. We're going to play you in with a song by Yola Tengo. It's called... I heard you looking, which is something I feel like we can all relate to. Hope you enjoy it.
Okay, so we are in our East Vancouver studio. I'm sitting here with Ram Sayed Amami, otherwise known as King Ram. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for making the time to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah of course. Um, so for those who don't know your story, I guess a good place to start would be a bit of your background. Um, so from my understanding, you are first and foremost a musician. Uh, yeah, um, I guess that's, that's what I do yeah. um, for a living, or at least I attempt to do for mm -hmm. a living. Um, but yeah, just a, a small background would be that I was born in Iran, moved to the States at a young age, went back, came to Canada in the 90s, um, you know, did a lot of back and forth to, again, to Europe, Iran, and started an underground band, <laughs> then we got a name for ourselves, we came back to the States, um, and uh, we had some moderate success, and etc., and, you know, a lot of back and forth, I've, I've, I've been like a, a a cosmic nomad of sorts. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to put it. Uh, what kind of genre would you say you uh, you would fall into? I mean, I've dabbled in everything, but mostly rock related. I guess you know, from post punk to a bit more folky sound when mm -hmm. when, I'm, when it's just me and my guitar. Or, but it's um, you know, I sing both in English and in Persian, um, and uh, it's fun switching between languages uh, you get to express different emotions because um, the way that you um, view things in, in, in each language you know adds its certain own flavor to it something yeah. in English might sound really cheesy in, in, in Persian and the other way around so that's really fun to get away with those sort of things yeah it's hard for me to imagine anything sounding cheesy in Farsi it's a beautiful <laughs> language um, so you oh, said, believe me, there's a lot of cheesy Persian songs. Oh, <laughs> yeah? Terrible, yeah. Our, we're going through a really bad pop phase in our country right now, so... Really? What kind of, like, what kind of pop? Like, modern American kind of pop influence? I mean, it's... Or? it's, it's I guess it, they're, they're trying to, I guess, emulate the modern American pop, but imagine being 20 years behind, so... Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I think it's just that the, the, it's become a product of a sort of passive culture of where uh, music, like real music, like for example, the way that I always argue is that, you know, we, we had a really powerful underground scene in the past couple of decades in Iran, which real good music is coming out of. Even to this day, I think our like underground, like hip hop and any, any music that's illegal or deemed illegal by the government, in my opinion, is a million times better than any of the legal crap that's coming out in Iran. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, there was, there was always this edge and this authenticity to all that underground sound. But I think the government, I don't know, conscious or not, they started, uh, they introduced a platform of giving more permits to, to musicians of all sort of genres. And this, in a way, sort of, in my opinion, it sort of began to kill the creative process because they make life so hard for musicians in Iran. You have to go through so many phases just to get a permit to perform or to record. There's like four or five different layers to it. Permit for the lyrics, the music, the security background check, etc. It's like, it's the most absurd way of trying to, you know, uh, perform and record music. I've never heard anything like this anywhere in the world. Because, you know, music and art has this ability to inspire people and, and you know, whenever you can get a lot of people together in a room, it causes sort of more authoritarian governments to be afraid. So that's why they, they try to control it through through giving these permits, but also at the same time slowing the process of actually giving them and making it much harder 
on the musicians themselves. That's why I, I don't think we have a very good thriving like official scene. Like anything cool that's happening in Iran is either in the underground scene or it's outside of Iran. Um, so when you first started playing music in Iran, was there certain music that was prohibited? It seems like they've kind of loosened it up at right. least slightly lately, but... Uh, well, yeah, you know, rock and roll was prohibited, you know, any kind of dance music was prohibited. Um, dance music? Yeah, dan they really hate dance music. Mm -hmm. Anything that makes the hips move, you know, but now they're the switching devil's to pop. music. Yeah, it's funny because all the pop music is all dance music now. Mm -hmm. But people are, you know, in Iran, you're not allowed to stand at a concert. It's, you all have to sit down. So people are sitting down and they're clapping to a dance song. So you can imagine how, but, but people, I, let me just to clarify for people so they don't think that it's some backward country, you know, like, like in the privacy of their homes and the private parties and underground clubs in Iran, they're crazier than any club you've seen in Berlin. So they, they know how to party, they know how to have a good time. I mean, consumption of alcohol and drugs in Iran is like so high that, you know, the, 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 the United Nations, you know, has been like saying for years that we need to sort of confront this, you know, epidemic of, you know, alcohol and drug abuse in Iran, because officially they never claim to have any such problems. Yeah, they would never, the Iranian government, I, I would think, would never actually admit to doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how the UN would get those kind of statistics, given the fact that it must be so secretive. Well, because, you know, you have overdoses, death by drugs, you know, you have a lot of alcohol poisoning, you know, a lot of people, they do, they make their own moonshine alcohol there. So there's a lot of blindness for, that comes with that. So, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's a very unofficial sort of uh, a record, but even in between ourselves within society, we like, I, you know, I don't want to just guess, you know, or speculate, but every person in, 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 in Iran, at least out of like, of our friends, anyone that you know, rich or poor, we know at least a couple of addicts. You know, we, we know at least a couple of people who have problems, you know, in terms of their drug or alcohol intake. What are the most commonly used drugs in Iran? Because um, we get a bit of everything. Well, you know, the, you know the, the, the main opium trade come, flows through Iran. It's right between Iran and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So opium is probably the, the, the biggest um, uh, drug that, that, that they use. Not much of a party drug. It's not though. a party drug. For yeah. party, they use meth. Meth, crystal meth, has uh -huh. unfortunately become, you know, um, very. It's very cheap, you know, and it keeps you up and you know dancing and partying. I prefer the opium myself. You know, <laughs> when I when I when I used to sort of you know have fun, but that, I mean that's a downer, obviously. And it's I stay away from that stuff because it's so good that I can see why you know it's so easily addictive. It's like a black hole. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's too good to be true because it completely numbs all physical and emotional pain and next thing you know. But a lot of people, they just even use it like, you see a lot of like workers in Iran before they go to work, they just put a little bit of opium in their tea and they just... Um, uh, I can only imagine the HR meeting that would happen here <laughs> were that to take place. Um, so... Is, can you buy alcohol in Iran? So alcohol is officially illegal, but any kind of alcohol is easily obtainable. You just call someone, they come and they, you know, they, they hit their truck up and there's everything from tequila to vodka to whiskey and, yeah. you know, so a lot of it is, you know, some of it is fake, you know, but some of it, you know, you pay a higher premium for the real stuff, but it's so accessible. You know, I can easily say that we drink way more over there than in, 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 in our own circle of friends than I do over here in the West. 
Do you think that's because it's prohibited? Yeah, it absolutely. Adds a mystique? Yeah, you know, it's not not only that. It's because like anywhere else, it's like sort of during you know Al Capone's reign and you know the whole prohibition era of the states. The same thing happens. Um, the more you try to suffocate people and tell them not to do something, they're going to do the exact opposite. So in a way, you know, it's um, it's sort of like you know marijuana in the West. Now it's becoming legalized everywhere because you know on. Uh, oh, how many people do we know that uses it, whether for recreational uses or for health concerns? Um, it's, it's, I mean, everywhere almost it's becoming legal across the board, both in Canada and the States and Europe. So it's only a matter of time, I think, you know, before the rest of the world catches up with that sort of idea. Yeah, definitely. In Vancouver, cannabis is definitely the norm. Like, I smoked right. weed before I ever drank alcohol back mm-hmm. in the day. So it's, yeah, very much permeated our kind of regular culture. Um, so back to the music, um, how did you first get involved in, uh, in playing? I just, it was very actually random. Um, I, I'd go, I, was in, I was in Canada at the time and I went back on a trip to Iran for the summer and um, I had gone to uh, go and buy my, because um, in Iran after you're 18 you have to like go do like military service and you, uh, you get conscripted into the army if you if you want to leave the country again But for the time they were like selling it off for I don't know like a couple like thousand dollars or something Even less it was pretty cheap So and they sometimes you know they allow them they sell it and sometimes they don't so as soon as that window of opportunity was open I was like my dad was like you should just get Get rid of this get it, get it out of the way So it's two years that you'd have to do normally two years two, But if you buy years. it you only have to do like three weeks or so it's just like a boot camp summer camp for like, you know, yeah. For kids who could afford to basically buy it off, and um, even in two years, it's not like intense, like you know, military stuff. You're just sitting like in an office doing paperwork or something. Mostly. Less exciting than. <laughs> yeah, you know. And, well, honestly, thank God. Yeah, you know, exactly. That's what you'd want, really. And uh, but yeah, I only did a couple of weeks, anyways. You know, it's just like they just made us run around, in a, you know, in a place we have to sign in in the morning, and then we'd leave at noon. But after that, uh, I met. This guy at, at, at the camp that I was in, um, who, who played the drums, and he had heard that, you know, I come from the States, I come from Canada, and uh, he's like, hey man, you know how to speak English, why don't you come become our singer? Because we both, like, had the same taste in music, um, and this is like, I think, the year 2000, maybe, and... Um, we're, we we just begin to, we had just begun to get into grunge, so we were like ten years behind. So we were like into Nirvana and you know Pearl Jam and and sort of all that 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 grungy good stuff. And um, I was like, and a lot of punk as well. Actually, we listened to a lot of punk back then, and uh, Bad Religion and No Effects and. <laughs> How do you um, get these band music, in the pre-internet era at least, so this right. may have been, like, well, yeah, I guess around 2000, before the internet kind of blew up, how would you get those well, records? Well, it's funny, but even rank? before that in Iran, the music was always, um, you know, it was like, people would carry around like a suitcase full of like cassette tapes, like as if it was carrying like, you know, drug money or <laughs> something dangerous. So it was, it was actually really, really funny and scary at the same time of trying to obtain new music. You'd have to go to a store and say code, and then the guy would bring out like a booklet of his available cassettes or the bootlegs that he had, or CDs or whatever. So it was pretty difficult actually getting your hands on new music. But whenever we had a friend coming from, you know, the West, we'd be like, oh, can you buy this and this and that CD? 
And um, I think in the beginning, we, we, we heard about a lot of bands through satellite TV and the music channels that we saw. So we went, whenever we'd see a band on TV, like I remember when I first saw like Green Day's Basket Case video, I was like 12 or 13 or something. I'm like, oh, this guy is so cool, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I, I mean, I can't stand Green Day now, but... <laughs> it was 2000. We, we all no, no, this is even before that. This is like 90, whatever, four or five when I was like really young. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so the, 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 the music, um, that, that's how we sort of got our hands on it. But after the internet, we caught up with the rest of the world, obviously. Then all of a sudden, Napster, and then bam, you know, we have access to everything. So just going to the catalog of the history of, you know, rock and roll and whatever. It was an open book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's good. That must have been revolutionary for oh, people. Oh, it, it was so much fun. I still, I think, have my hard drives full of those endless MP3s. Nice. Never get rid of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so what are some of the challenges of, uh, so you guys started playing music and, uh, I imagine the local government wasn't super down with the punk scene necessarily. So what are some of the challenges of throwing an underground show in Iran? So at the time, um, it was, it was pretty intense. Uh, we'd have to like put mattresses and like eggs, what were they, what are the egg cartons, yeah. you know, and everything on the walls and the windows and the house and we put blankets everywhere and to insulate the sound as much as we could to not let it you know leave the building and we'd find wherever we could abandoned buildings or you know friends homes or villas outside of the city and um, uh, we'd, we'd have like you know lookouts with walkie-talkies to tell us if the cops are coming in if they're gonna raid the place because we'd all been at at least one party you know where the, the cops had raided the place and taken us all away I mean now it's become a bit more lenient in the sense that they don't beat you up they just like you have to pay an absorbent amount of, of a fine you know which is ridiculous just for partying you know mm -hmm. but back in the day you if they if they took you away you, you get whipped you know you get prison time all just for like partying and drinking you know so you can imagine i, I i've always said this in many of my interviews but the the rush and the the excitement and adrenaline that we felt in those underground shows because both us and the audience experiencing this very frightening yet exciting moment together, knowing that any moment they can raise the house and we'll all be taken away, would add this element of just euphoria to the experience. It doesn't matter how shitty we were playing, you know, this was the only chance for a lot of those kids to ever see a live rock and roll show. So we just like, we would play everything like for like five hours. We start from like Elvis all the way to the Ramones, to Radiohead, to Pink Floyd, like whatever we could get, you know, learn, we, we'd play, you know, it was just like any, any kind of music. We didn't care, you know, I, as long as there was a good groove to it, you know, people wanted to listen to it and they, they'd have requests or whatever. If we could play it, we'd play it. Um. So if you did get busted, would you be able to bribe your way out of it or? Yeah, so with that, most of the time, I mean, it's you, you, you're, you're able to, but there's like a, a different kind of police that are a vigil, vigilante police. They don't even have like official authority from the government, but they have much more strength than the actual police force. And they're called the Basij, who are a bunch of, you know, really young, brainwashed um, kids who who have just been taught to hate and to, you know, put down all these other kids who are having fun. I mean, that's, they've been from a young age, they've been conditioned and brainwashed to say that these kids, these other people who are drinking are, you know, they're, they're all going to hell, you know, and, 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 and you guys are doing a service to God by, you know, punishing them. And that's terrifying. I mean, 
This is a 14-year-old kid who's carrying an AK-47. He's pointing it in your face, telling you to not fucking drink. He hasn't even developed, you know, cognitively enough to, to even decide whether or not it's, if what he's doing is right or wrong or what the other person is doing is right or wrong. So when you confront someone like that, you can't reason with them, really. Those guys you could never bribe. Is this sanctioned by the government? Because he said vigilante, yeah. which, which would well, imply Well, it's sort of knowledge. like semi-official. That, that's what I'm saying. They don't have, like... They're, they're, called, they're called like a volunteer military force, a volunteer, uh, what is it, militia, you know, but, but they essentially, they, and they, they operate under the IRGC, which is the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, who are the most dangerous people in the country, who are the, 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 the brains and the power and the money behind the, the whole system and the regime in the country. And these people are basically, the Basij are their... Uh, laptops, basically, yeah. so do their dirty work for them. So not officially sanctioned, but definitely encouraged. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So how did you end up back playing in the States then? Um, so I think it was around 2006 um, when we got an invitation. I sent a demo to South by Southwest Festival in Austin, Texas, and we got accepted to play. And we, we realized that because there's only so much you could do um, in terms of progressing in the music scene in Iran. We couldn't get a permit, we couldn't sell music, we couldn't make money off of our music. So if we want to take it seriously, we have to take it, you know, to the other side of the planet. And every year I'd come back to Canada, you know, and I'd, you know, go and see live bands here and, and just have fun and, and see that. I remember every single show I would see here and, you know, in Vancouver or Toronto or wherever, um, I, I think to myself like, hey man, we can do this, you know, and, and I, I had miserably failed at everything else in my life, you know, college life and uh, work, you know, I've, I've, I think I've been fired from every single job. Ever. I mean, I only had a few jobs anyway before I, I mean, that's, that's one thing I always, I, I never knew I was going to become a musician, but I, I knew that I didn't want to have a nine to five type of job. I needed to have control of my own life and destiny and I'm, I, I'm not really good at taking orders, let me put it that way. <laughs> How old were you at this time when you first went over to play South by Southwest? Think about, uh, I think it was like 25. Okay. 25, yeah, yeah. around then. Yeah. And 26, 25. Um, so we finally got this break to come to the States, and we packed up all our shit, and with a couple hundred dollars each, my band at the time was called Hypernova. Uh, and we actually sung in English. I, I didn't even sing in Persian at the time. Yeah, I listened to some of your songs actually yesterday. Oh, yeah, the Persian ones or the uh, the English ones, fairy tales, okay. I think, and one other one. It was kind of a spacey music video. Okay. Uh, yeah, it kind of sounded like the National or like She Wants Revenge or oh, something. Oh yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely had that sort of vibe to it because mm -hmm. um, we 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 liked like, you know the Sisters of Mercy and Bauhaus and Interpol. You know that more a little bit I of love that, Interpol. Yeah, yeah, that sort of gothic sounding, not gothic, but you know a little bit more post punk. Yeah, a bit darker edgy. sound. Um, we, we were really into that stuff for a while and uh, yeah so we got a break to come to the States and uh, we ended up in New York and we, we had you know some some press in the New York Times and MTV and I didn't think much of it at the time but they really exploded you know and all of a sudden we got like several thousand emails from around the planet about our story and uh, you know, all of a sudden our career sort of catapulted into this whole other category. But, you know, as I was, and as I've mentioned this before, I didn't feel that we were deserving of all the attention 
that we were getting because musically we really suck. We really knew how to, we we were good at pretending to be rock stars, but in all actuality, you know, we we still had a long ways to go to become good musicians. Uh, did you feel kind of guilty about your success relative to the situation back home? I'm assuming you were friends with like other people in bands who maybe never made that launch into right. the North American scene. Yeah, I guess, you know, um, there was definitely a bit of, uh, of a guilty feeling, but at the same time, you know, you know, your, 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 your ego is massaged with all that attention, you know, all the press and the shows and the parties and the girls and the drugs and all that. And a part of me knew that, you know, hey, you're not deserving of all this, of all this good stuff. And another part of me was like, oh no, you absolutely deserve it. You know, you're destined to, you know, the, this is the universe telling you that you're on the right path. You know, you, we're really good at fooling ourselves, you know, <laughs> to, to believe uh, something that probably isn't healthy for us. And um, I, the, 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 it, was, it was a fun ride while it lasted. We had like some really great times, but being consistent um, in, in, in this world is, you know, we were right on the cusp of, of, of this change happening in the music industry, going from the old traditional conventional way to the more social media. This is like exactly when MySpace blew up and then Facebook, you know, MySpace went, you know, it came and went so fast. Yeah. And then whatever, Facebook and Instagram and all of a sudden the dynamic of the game really changed. And... Um, you know, the people that wanted to sort of, we had like agents and labels and people trying to dress us up and telling us how to act and if you want to be successful. And honestly, like they were probably right that you have to like dress up and act a certain way to achieve that sort of success in LA. And I wasn't willing to give into it. I was someone that I always believed in substance, you know, first and then everything else. I wanted my music to move people, to touch people, to inspire them. Um, you know, that meant more to me than to just make a quick buck and be like this poster boy for like, at one point they wanted to like dress us up in like, you know, military gear or like, you know, and play on this whole idea of being like, you know, I don't know, revolutionaries and stuff like that. And we were like, fuck, no, you know, we're not going to like, you know, I'm not going to do a photo shoot like holding grenades and shit. Like that's just <laughs> it's a bit tacky. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there was a bit of that, you know, happening and it's all very confusing because when you're confronted with all these opportunities to, to succeed, you sort of, uh, and by the way, at the same time, you're very poor. And when you're poor, one thing I've learned is during the, the times that I've been extremely poor, um, you're so desperate to, to make any type of move or decision, you tend to make the wrong decision a lot. Because you're like, oh, if I just make this, you know, five grand here, then I can do this and that. But a lot of times that five grand or that, that one project ends up costing you much more than, than you could have made, you know, on another project. So it's very hard, you know, treading on this line of staying, you know, authentic and keeping it real, you know, as they say. So you ended up being based out of New York for a little while. Um, where, where were you living? What was that kind of situation like? Uh, the New York days were, were really fun, to be honest. I still, like, New York is still my favorite city in the world. And uh, I really missed living there. And I actually had planned on living there before all this crazy shit happened to my family recently. Um, but I was living in Williamsburg. Well, actually, I started living off in Bushwick for a while. I lived everywhere. I lived even in the Bronx for a while in Manhattan. But yeah, I lived in Bushwick for a while. We got like this loft at this place called the Tea Factory Lofts. 
and um, the, we had like a bunch of rooms that weren't even rooms. It was like imagine like building like a, a, a tree house in a loft. So there are a bunch of like small type like cabinet type rooms which you, you couldn't even stand in. You could only go in there to sleep. Like an Ewok village. Basically, kind of yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was really fun, you know, because it was me and the gang and the band, and we'd have so much, you know, crazy parties. And when you're, you know, when you're in the zone with your friends and your bandmates and you're all behind each other and you know you're supporting each other it's the best feeling in the world that sense of belonging to a community that sense of unity it's something that i really miss to be honest uh, i think it's something that a lot of people um desire in today's western world I, f I see that lacking because there's so much focus on this hyper individualistic lifestyle spe especially in the west more so than the east that people you know, they, they, they long to, to belong to a community. That's why I think like places like Burning Man are so popular in, in, with, 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 yeah. with the Western folk. I'm actually going this year. For, I've been, for it's amazing. Time. It's really fun. You know, it's become obviously a bit more commercial, but still the experience is a, it's a really amazing one. And I think the, the, one of the main reasons is because people can just completely be naked, you know, literally and, you know, figuratively um, and, and not be judged. And, and feel like they belong to a, a community of like-minded people. So when you do, when you party or you do drugs or you connect to people in that setting, it just makes it so much more blissful, that yeah. whole experience. Yeah, I've always said about festivals, it's the one place in the world where you can show up wearing whatever you want, you can use a fake name, you can identify however you personally feel in that moment without any kind of sense of judgment or worrying. Well, it depends on the type of festival, obviously, but I think the type of festivals that you and I would gravitate to, it's that kind of environment, which, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this summer. Um, so what ended up happening at this, uh, this lofty uh, kind of place? Well, after that, I went, I went and got a place in Williamsburg on North Ten and Barrie, and it was a really cool spot. I really loved that house. And basically, at this time, I brought another band uh, from Iran to the States, some friends of ours, the Yellow Dogs. They were formerly in my own band, Hypernova. By the time, they had visa issues, so they couldn't come. And so the, it was like a full house of me and those guys. Uh, my old band, which was still living, I think, in the, in the Bushwick loft. And we had a couple other people staying with us, a friend of mine who's this crazy writer and his wife and this, this, this Iranian-German girl who was like his adventurer and um, like a filmmaker. So we'd have a lot of random people, you know, coming over, mostly like Iranian kids. But, you know, we always had like our doors open. I wanted to like sort of uh, emulate, you know, Andy Warhol's factory. I wanted to create a, a, a happy space, a creative space for a bunch of, you know, like-minded artists so we could all just come there and be comfortable, not worry about paying too much rent. And it was really fun, you know, in the beginning there, that house, but it, 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 it quickly devolved into a pretty crazy scene, you know, whether the parties or the amount of drugs and just the, 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 the overall nastiness of that house was just like too much. You know, the older I was getting, I was realizing like, holy shit, man, I can't go on like this forever. I got to I got to get my shit together. So it wasn't as utopian as I had imagined it to be. But um, afterwards, we sort of parted paths, and I, I fell in love with this girl in Toronto. I came here, and then um, I, she, I went to London with her, and sort of I was between London and Toronto for a while. And the rest of the Yellow Dogs, they moved to another loft, 
And over there, they brought again some other kids from Iran. And I don't know if you read about this or heard about that story about like there was this tragic um, incident that one of the guys over there, and I didn't know this guy, by the way, he, they kicked him out of the house. He became depressed and alone. He had some mental issues. Guy barely spoke a word of English and somehow gets his hand on a semi-automatic rifle, comes back to the house and kills, you know, three of the guys and then himself uh, on the rooftop. And I'll never forget the day when I heard the news. I just couldn't believe it because, like, all these kids had come with the hope of, you know, achieving their dreams, you know, escaping Iran and all its, you know, horrors, only to become, like, murdered, you know, by, uh, by, by one of their own over here, you know. So, I mean, obviously the guy was mentally un, un, unstable, but it's just crazy that someone who can barely speak a word of English can get their hands on such a deadly weapon. And it's one of those things you read in the news all about these mass shootings, and when it happened so close to you, I immediately went to New York, you know, on the next flight, and we were there and held a memorial and everything. Um, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to, to go through, and that really broke all of our hearts because... None of those kids deserve to go out that way. And um, it really affected me personally on a level that made me sort of reevaluate everything I was doing at the time. And I actually just gone back to U of T. I'd broken up and I'd just gone back to university. I wanted to like, I don't know, I wanted to get back into the academic world or something. And I couldn't take that much longer. And I was really getting depressed and miserable. And uh, by 2014, I decided I wanted to go back to Iran, uh, 2014 or 2015. I wanted to go back to Iran uh, for a while to see with my parents to sort of get healthy again. Because uh, my parents would be back and forth too, you know, but it had been a couple of years since they had, they had gone back to Iran when my father was teaching at a university. And um, yeah, the first couple of years were, were okay, but you know, I quickly realized that, okay, there's not much progress again here. You know, it's like beating a dead horse. There's, 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 there's not much you can do. Even though I had a lot of success in Iran this time around because of my permits, all of a sudden I had shows with thousands of people in front of me. So you got a permit this time this around. This time I got a permit. This Was that because of your success in North America? They kind of legitimized you and they... No, no, no. Just like the government had nothing to do with that. Because actually they, they, they disapproved of all the things that I did in the West. Because I, I sung a lot of political songs and stuff as well. So I guess in a way for them, like I said, it was both a factor of they wanted to give, they wanted to show the, the people that were sort of progressing and were giving permits now to people. And at the same time, it was their secret means of control in terms of them having the option of outputting whatever they want to society. Because like, it was impossible, it was so hard for me to get, like, I couldn't sing about like, you know, sex and drugs or whatever anymore. I had to sing it in a context where, you know, lyrically, which was a challenge, which was actually pretty exciting, but I had to go around through, you know, metaphors and, you know, symbolism to, to sort of, um, to sort of relay the message that I wanted to, which was fun for a while, but at the end of the day, it's just, it takes so much out of your creative juices that I realized that, you know, fuck this, I, um, I'd rather be free and comfortable and, and perform in a dingy dive bar in New York in front of 10 people than be a fake on top of a stage in front of 5,000. Yeah. Uh, my friend was actually telling me, who, who grew up in, in Tehran, that uh, at one point, and this is probably before your time when you, when you started playing music, but you couldn't even show musical instruments 
like in the music videos or something like that? Have you on national that? television, even to this day, to this day on national television, you're not allowed to show musical instruments. Why is that? It's, you know, there's this, um, on, uh, there's this sort of uh, very paranoid sort of way of thinking within the Iranian elements of, of government where they, um, you know, they have like this idea of West toxification, I think if that's the word, or, you know, it's, it's, it's where, where they, they don't want any type of Western culture to permeate within their own Islamic culture. So anything that represents that Western culture is either banned or shunned by the government and their practices. So that's why, you know, and like I said, you know, and, and uh, music and art and, um, and journalists, writers, these type of people, you know, who have the ability to either mobilize people or to inspire people, the government is, is, is terrified of them. So that's where they'll do whatever they can, whether it's banning newspapers or stopping concerts. They've, they've closed down so many concerts, you wouldn't believe. Or, you know, um, you know controlling cinema. And it's, it's so hard even to get a permit to, to, to make a movie there, you know. And that's the thing. It's, um, that's, what, that's what totalitarian governments do. They control every aspect of society in order to steer and push people into the direction that they want but not realizing that people in the privacy of their homes are acting one way but in the public they're all acting like the sheep that the government sort of wants them to on average obviously it's difficult working with averages but would you say that most people are living these kind of secretly more liberal lives and have the more conservative face or are there people out there who are like you know definitely falling for the propaganda and drinking the kool-aid what would you say is the majority um i i would say the majority is the more uh liberal type i mean there, there is like a you know we're like 80 85 million it's a population of iran I would say like a good 10 to 15 percent, at least, at least, have, have, have sort of drank the Kool-Aid. And I would probably say another like 20, 30 percent have like conservative values, but they're not really into the sort of uh, uh, fundamentalist, fanatical sort of side of the spectrum of, of Islam. But they still have, you know, traditional conservative values. Yeah. They're not bad people, you know. I mean, they 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 just believe in those sort of values, and the other rest, I think, um, tend to, you know, um, fall into that sort of more liberal uh, spectrum. And by liberal, it doesn't mean like I'm not talking about like an open-minded, you know, type of liberal. Not all of them are like very. They just a lot of them are just people who who at this point aren't really concerned with 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 liberal ideals or values. They just want to have fun. They just want to drink, get fucked up, get laid, you know, get paid and, 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 and do their thing. That's it. Um, I think, unfortunately, there's, there's, there's a lot of apathy within our sort of civic culture. And um, people have sort of, especially since the last elections, the last couple of elections have been, the people feel like they've been really let down the people who have voted for the more quote-unquote progressive government and 
um, their hearts are broken in the sense that the government hasn't delivered and essentially showing that they really have no power and all of the power resides within the hand of the supreme leader and the revolutionary guards and all of those more fanatical factions of government. Iran is overwhelmingly young people at this point, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know the exact statistic, but like over 70% are under 35. Yeah, I can imagine that. And these are kids who are very, like I said, very tech-savvy. Like, you wouldn't believe how tech-savvy these Iranian kids are. I mean, I see more people playing around with high-tech gadgets over there than I do over here. Because a lot of the times, you know, that's one of their ways to sort of, you know, first of all, you know, because internet is censored, people find ways to, to communicate through, you know, uh, VPNs, you know, virtual private networks, because the regular internet, you can't access anything. Everything is filtered. I mean, like the dumbest shit is filtered, you wouldn't believe. And so with a VPN, they can access any, you know, uh, uh, website or channel or whatever. And uh, whether they use VPNs or Tor browsers or, or, or similar type of proxies to get around. Another huge thing in Iran has become these instant messaging apps. So, like, the, the most popular one in Iran is Telegram. And it's like a semi-secure app. But what, what's happened, it's different. The, the difference in Telegram with other sort of messaging apps was that it, it, it allowed a lot of community activity. And all of a sudden, like, these communities grew into, like, millions, if not hundreds of thousands of people, you know. So, um, there's, like, all of a sudden these big community of people who, whether they, they have dissenting views, you know, or, or you know, very, uh, were able to sort of more freely communicate uh, political messages with one another. And all of a sudden, and now the government, one of their biggest objectives is trying to ban this app, this Telegram app, because... It's become a huge tool for people to to mobilize and to, to spread and share information. And obviously that type of thing for an authoritarian government makes them fear for their very own existence. I'm sure it'll, it's like the Hydra. If they ban that app, they'll find another app or oh, yeah, another way around something. it. I mean, I, I you know, uh, I, I quickly learned that, you know, it's... it's, it's uh, it's crazy that the amount of energy and resources the government puts into sort of monitoring its people. They don't have the apparatus to monitor everyone, but they've instilled so much fear and terror into people and have made examples of people, whether by killing them in the prisons or just outright hanging them in public, that, you know, people become afraid enough that they censor themselves. That's the what if not the main reason one of the main reasons this government has been able to stay in power for so long because most people in this country don't want that government most people in in, in this country um would rather have a more liberal uh government that is 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 um connecting with the with the with the rest of the world instead of isolating us. Because the hardliners, they, they want to go towards the North Korea. That's their dream come true. That's their wet dream. You know, they want that. They want nothing more than for us to be completely isolated so they can have complete and utter rule domestically. I mean, even more so than they do right now, which is terrifying because, you know, given with the resources that we have and oil and natural gases, and um, there's a lot of wealth in Iran, and unfortunately, it's only 
you know, divided between the very high-level officials. It's such a corrupt system, such a corrupt government. You have actually a lot of these people who have, who, these corrupt officials who have fled and come to Canada. There's one, you know, case where there's like this billionaire, former Iranian official, I think in Toronto, who they're trying, Iranians have been, you know, telling the Canadian government, you got to send him back, you know. Um, even though the guy is probably guilty of like a lot of shit, you know, they're, they're going to probably hang him. So the Canadian government isn't complying. They're not going to like, you know. Yeah, but that. still, it sucks. You know what? I, you know, I actually have to see a lot of, you know, these, these people here in Vancouver and Toronto. And it, and it really breaks my heart, especially after everything that I've been through, seeing the family members of these you know, government officials living in their mansions and riding their fancy cars, the same people who are responsible for the death of people like my father, you know, walking around freely, roaming around over here. It's, it's really painful, but I don't... What do you think their opinion on it is? Are these kids who are sent away maybe at a young age? Yeah, that's, or... that's why I can't really judge them. First of all, I don't know these people. And these are the kids probably... Obviously, they're not responsible for their father's actions, so I can't hold a grudge against those poor kids. I mean, that's the environment they grew up in. Those are the cards that they were dealt. But it's still like a, it's a stinging reminder of, of you know, of, of, of how, you know, corrupt people can easily take away the wealth of their, their nation and just do whatever they want with it while people are suffering and being killed and murdered. Yeah. It's, a, it's a tricky situation. I have a Brazilian friend actually who is working on getting her immigration, like her, her, her citizenship over here for similar reasons. She got just super frustrated with, because she came from a relatively well-off family, so she'd kind of be rubbing elbows with these um, kind of more aristocratic families who would send their children off on like, you know, trips around the world where she'd have to walk home through a slum. And so that's part of the reason why she left. So this is, yeah, this kind of, problem is definitely rising globally and I and it's know. worse in third world countries you know, or developing countries I mean the thing is that it's you know for example let me just give you a small example maybe a lot of your listeners don't know but in Iran cars cost three to four times more than they do anywhere else in the world and so basically people who want to import cars into Iran there's a section of the government which is you know, run by the supreme leader, supreme leader's son and his cronies, where they put a tariff on every car, like a three hundred percent tax. Three hundred. Yes. You wouldn't believe, like a, a ten thousand dollar car over here costs like forty to fifty grand in Iran. And, and our currency, you know, is the most devalued currency on the planet right now. That's it's what like, I was going to say. Like the wages, there's no... Is that because they just want to make a bunch of skin off the top? Or absolutely. They're, they're, they're taking this... They're, they're skimming off the top for themselves and the wealthier insiders. So basically not only... Whenever you see someone like, like driving a really expensive car in Iran, not only is it like a fuck you to you, but it's also it's like a status of like... like of uh, of because you know a lot of these nouveau riche people who who had made money through corrupt elements within the government have all um, you know are the type that go out to have so much that they can afford to buy a car that would cost a hundred grand here and they pay half a million for it over there you know so it's just really really crazy and when you see these and it's like these are like all reminders of the sort of country that you live in and the I could just speak on my own example 
in terms of my music. I had a producer, a very wealthy kid who was a son of a banker. His father was one of the insiders of the government, wealthy, connected guy. I mean, had more liberal tendencies, but still the family's connected. And it was only because of his backing of me that I was allowed to get a permit. So in Iran, in any type of work that you want to do, there isn't like some sort of legal way that you just go, you know, to an office or to HR or whatever and apply for something and it's done. No, you have to either bribe someone or know someone. Like that's just how the system and the game works over there. And you just accept it for what it is. How does it work for recording music? Do you have, would it be your producer listening to the individual songs to make sure you didn't say anything out of line or does it go to some sort of other Well, it starts body? with him. It starts with him. And by producer, you know, I mean like he's like a financial producer, not like a record producer. Okay. Like, so he's like more like a record label exec, you know. And so basically he first sort of steers and monitors your direction into a way where he knows that he can get a permit for it. And after that, they go and try to convince the officials of the Ministry of Culture to, you know, allow certain lyrics, you know, or music to, to get by the system. Had I just gone on my own, I walked with my, my CD and I, formed, I filled out a form, there was no way I would have got a permit. Yeah. How did you get uh, hooked up with this guy then? I just randomly um, uh, met him uh, through, a, through a mutual friend and... Um, I went and I played like a couple songs in his office for him one day on my guitar. And he's like, do you want to go to Brazil next week? I was like, what? So we went to Brazil for the World Cup and we made, he made like a movie like about me. And the movie never came out, but I mean, it was still in production. But um, yeah, the same guy though, he really broke my heart. After my father's death, he deleted me from his life. He probably invested like, I don't know, like a, a, a lot, maybe near a million dollars on me. And just cut. Just cut. Like that. You've because he wanted to just cover his, like, not, not even his losses. He just didn't want to be associated to me and my family because of his fear of all the other shit that would happen. This is another, like, heartbreaking thing that happened, you know, in our story, which I, I think is the main story that I wanted to talk about today. Um, and the story of my father. Um, so, for, for those of you who don't know, uh, my father was the Iranian-Canadian man, uh, Kavus Sayyid Amami, who was uh, arrested in Iran several months ago in January and uh, suspiciously, suspiciously died uh, under circumstances that we're unaware of. And ever since then, you know, there's been a lot of obviously press and media about the story, about the Canadian government trying to, you know, get to the bottom of this my family fearing for our lives. We, 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 I, we just went back to get my mom and bring her back to Canada. Um, they prevented my mom from leaving the country and she's essentially being held hostage in Iran. It's been six months since. Um, but yeah, that's, that's I guess the, the main reason why I'm here today. I just want to talk about his story and, 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 and spread as much information I can about him. What were the charges when he was arrested? So basically, my father worked uh, for this environmental NGO, uh, uh, which was called the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation. Essentially, their main job was protecting wildlife, like the Asiatic cheetah, um, you know, Iranian uh, gazelles and deer and boars, bears, um, that type of thing. You know, they would mark 
you know, the animals and, and, and they'd work with big organizations like National Geographic, you know, they had set up, you know, camera traps to monitor their movement. And basically for whatever strange reason, the government uh, was suspicious of them and their activities. Um, and apparently, you know, on, uh, they, they started uh, a case against this organization and arrested my father and his colleagues on the charges of espionage, which is absolutely absurd. I mean, um, the, the organization was so transparent. All of their records are on their website, all of their financial biddings, everything that they've done. And one of the, the craziest things was that, uh, you know, they accused of my father of working with Mossad the the CIA and MI6, you know, all together. Was right. it MI5? Or MI6, MI6. The British. Yeah, yeah. the British uh, secret services. So first of all, I don't think there's any agent in the world that works, you know, with all these organizations, which is just stupid in itself. But you know, the people who had arrested my father are, you know, they, they're, they're the intelligence unit of the Revolutionary Guards, and they're the most paranoid, delusional group of fanatics that you can imagine in the whole country. So you're dealing with a bunch of fucking crazy people who genuinely believe they had, that they had caught the James Bond of Iran. Like that's how insane these people were. And unfortunately, you know, for my father, um, you know, he, uh, like all the evidence that they used against him, like they, they raided our house. Um, my studio was like in the basement and they took away all my musical equipment and everything. They said that it was being used for espionage. Your guitar. I, they took my guitar, you know, sound cards and effects and everything. Amplifiers, whatever. Thinking that there was, um, there was something that, uh, that, you know, that, that we were using, you know, to, to send information. As if like, you know, I don't know what the hell they were thinking. But... Um, Do you think they really believed it? Or was it just an well, excuse to kind is, of push you guys around? It was an excuse to push us around, but at the same time, like I said, they're in their own paranoid sort of way of thinking, they, they need to always, you know, uh, distract people with these kinds of things in order to cover their own tracks of all the other shit that they're doing inside and outside the country. So, um, um, when, 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 when they raided our home, they took everything away from us. They took, you know, our personal, you know, computers, hard drives, photo albums from our childhood, the deeds to our home, which, you know, which, which was worth a lot of money and, um, everything else, you know, even jewelry and stuff like that. Spy jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. They took like eight, nine suitcases worth of stuff from our home. And, you know, they used our home footage. Because my father was like an avid camper and outdoors person. We used to film all of our camping trips across Iran. By film, I mean, you know, just like with iPhones and just like, you know, we just make like little family videos of, of our holidays. And they used the same video to make... A, a, a smear campaign against us. So they would, they took all of our camping videos, say that these people would go out into the desert, into the mountains to monitor, you know, our, our secret, you know, 
um, missile activities. First of all, if they're secret, you know, you guys even shouldn't be doing this in the first place. Well, you just, you know, forget about that for a second. But the fact that our, our father had a permit from the Ministry of Environment to, 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 to go to all those places to set up camera traps because they were saying these camera traps were being used to monitor, you know, our movement. And again, the camera traps had only like a 50 foot range, you know, and they're shitty disposable cameras. They're not even like really good cameras because they, they usually break in the wild or they're stolen. So they, they don't invest a lot of money into these things. But, you know, the fact that my father also ironically taught at a very conservative university and he was one of the, you know, most progressive and liberal people in that university also raised, you know, suspicion like how can a man like him who has a PhD from the United States, you know, operate in such a, you know, conservative university. So in their own minds, you know, they were connecting like the dots of, okay, we have this educated, you know, man from the West who's teaching in one of our insider schools. They have like a son who's like this rock and roll wannabe star who has a, a secret studio in the basement. They go on all these camping trips into the wild. So in their delusional mind, they take all this circumstantial evidence and they sort of you know, like in a beautiful mind type of way. Remember how you would connect all the dots? They were just connecting these imaginary dots. And to them, they had discovered and uncovered, you know, the, the biggest, you know, uh, espionage ring in the history of Iran. That's how they claimed it. That's how they played it out in the media. And what's really sad is that, um, which I was sort of getting at to a bit earlier, is that there's a lot of people who don't believe this shit. They know all the propaganda that the government, you know, uh, is, is selling them. But at the same time, there was a good swath of the population who felt like, well, yeah, maybe they did something wrong. You know, because we become such pessimistic as Iranian people that, you know, this, this idea is like innocent until proven guilty is like it's completely non-existent in our culture almost. And it's really disturbing because... All of a sudden, when this happened, overnight, we went from having a beautiful, loving family to all of a sudden being on an island where, you know, the, the, the few people that have remained in our support group were, were, were far less than I had imagined. I mean, obviously, it, it picked up again when people realized about the injustices that our family had suffered. But so many people literally turn their backs on us in a way very close friends or just like they just didn't want to be associated with us out of fear out of fear of losing what little that they had and that was a very very hurtful sort of revelation it, it, it really it really was painful to, to see your best friends and closest family members turning their backs on you during such difficult times but i get it you know it's human nature to be afraid and you know but there's a part of me that believes that, you know, because this type of thing happens so much in our country that we turn a blind eye to it. It's like, when are we going to stand up to this, to these atrocities, to this injustice? When, when is a good time? Does one of our family members have to get killed for us to realize that? No, this, we shouldn't take this shit anymore. We should raise our voices. Because I'm pretty sure that they, 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 you know, they have no ways to control the entire population but they've instilled like i said earlier so much fear and terror into people that they very um consciously um self-censor themselves well iran is no stranger to revolutions so 
I'm sure that is kind of in the back of their mind as well, that something, you know, do, do you think they're conscious of riding that fine line between like, you know, making it comfortable enough that people are, you know, not riled up, like no one's no, starving. Absolutely. That's exactly what their goal is. And I think one of the biggest tricks the devil played on us was this idea of reform in our country where we believe and myself too unfortunately we believe that the government always you know put on these more progressive candidates but they were still of the same cloth as themselves they weren't any different we were still voting for a you know an islamic cleric yeah. at the end of the day but in you know in our in, in, we, we were sold on this idea of reform because like you said, this idea of revolution hasn't done much good for our country, you know, in the, in the past couple of centuries. And I think not just in Iran, but a lot of places, I think, you know, revolutions really, really uh, put countries back uh, a few decades. And to, by, the time, by the time you want to recover, either, you know, another one happens, you know, another sort of puppet is, is replaced by, by the, 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 um, the current you know, dictator. So it's it's that's why I think there's a combination of people not wanting to have to go through a revolution again and just being satisfied just enough to not give a fuck and to revolt. So it's like very dangerous territory where we're sort of you know leaning towards, especially nowadays the the way that you know Trump is pressuring Iran and you know it's 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 really uh, um, you know, made people sort of. I don't. I don't think next next elections in Iran. I'm pretty sure that some crazy hardliner is going to get elected because I think the liberal people aren't going to vote anymore, like as much as they used to, because they've just lost all hope. The past since '98, when the first progressive government, 1998, Khatami was the first progressive government to come into power in Iran, and since him, you know, um, um, people are just fed up for the past couple of decades. They're just like, where are the results, man? You guys have been telling us year after year that you're gonna make things better, and they're not. Yeah, that kind of apathy is dangerous though, given, you know, like we're talking about Donald Trump, similar kind of sentiments were being felt, you know. And we're, It's funny though, regarding, um, you know, this kind of really, you know, xenophobic, angry attitude towards Iran that the West is kind of showing, if anything, is just, giving legitimacy to the hardliners to make it even worse for the people there. And uh, did you feel like that, um, you know, Trump's rhetoric has been successful in kind of radicalizing young people in Iran into thinking that there's a real existential threat, so we need to kind of, you know, stick to, you know, the party line over there? Or are people kind of just like, he's an idiot? Well, you know, generally speaking, Republican or Democrat, like, towards Iran has always been the same, you know. I mean, even historically, Democrats have actually been worse to Iran than, you know, um, Republicans. Um, at the end of the day, um, there's, like, this, res there's this, there's this mixture of this sort of strange kind of pride that, no, let us handle our own business, fuck you, don't get involved. I mean, and rightfully so, in a way, because, you know, you look at America sort of, Involvement in, in, in the Middle East and in Asia and in, 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 in Latin America, and you see the results, and the results aren't pretty, and they've they've fucked up a, a good amount of countries in the post you know uh, World War sort of era. 
So there's 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 a right to be hesitant and pessimistic and uh, towards the 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 American interventionism, you know. But at the same time, it's uh, it's it's interesting to see, you know, as much as I fucking hate Trump and everything that he stands for. What's like? Who would have thought in a million years that we would? If someone told you ten years ago that Trump will become president and bring peace with North Korea. Well, that's debatable. You know, there's a lot of posturing going on right now, but it is like we've entered, like something happened in 2016 and we've entered some strange alternate (laughs) universe where everything is possible so far. Yeah, so like, I think with, with, and I disagree with Trump on almost everything, Um, but I think the one thing that he he might be right on is that, you know, because he said that he's willing to negotiate with the Iranians, but only at the highest level, which means directly with the supreme leader. Because he's realized that the president has no authority in Iran. For people who don't know the history, what is who is the supreme leader? Is he like some sort of termless religious yeah, he's, figurehead? He's basically like the the king of the olden days who has divine authority, mm. like literally divine authority to to rule, um, and not only rule but also represent the like in, in in this version of Islam, like Shia Islam, he represents you know the. The, the the religion and culture in the in, in while the 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 what are they called the, the the returning prophet the savior the messiah of Islam is called Mahdi Imam Zaman. Well, before it's sort of like our Jesus Christ, you know, of, yeah. you know, coming back one day and is going to save the world or whatever or Greek judgment. I don't know exactly how it works. I wasn't really good at religious studies. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Um, how, how do you think people feel outside of Iran regarding Iranians' kind of like theology? Did would would Muslims outside of Iran view that supreme leader with the same kind of reverence? Or Shiite they... Muslims do. So yes. Shiite are and the Sunni sort of um, they 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 um, they separated past early on after. I think the the the, the Prophet Muhammad's, um, you know, I don't know if, I, if it comes up. Man, I'm so it uneducated. Very, I, about I, it was very early know? on. Yeah, yeah, I, I did a couple of religious <laughs> studies classes. It's funny, um, but it was because when Muhammad died, they there was a, a split in uh, who his successor could be. Exactly, so it was either going to be right, his right. uncle or his like son ne- or something, yeah, or like nephew that. or something, or yeah. son or like yeah, yeah, and that's where it's so it happened extremely early that there was yeah, exactly, and, and that's exactly what it came down to. So that's where the two sects sort of separated from, and they've been at war with each other ever since too. Which it seems is very, so ridiculous. It's which is yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's very strange, and you look at all the the historical wars that they've had with each other over the past, you know. Like thirteen hundred years, literally. Mm. So it's it's really absurd, you know. In my sense, you know, I, you know, I've had this discussion with many people, and you know, I, I consider myself to be a humanitarian first and anything else. And as much as I like, for example, I know this is a very touchy subject, like with hijab. So like the dress code for Islamic dress code, it's something I do not like. I think it's a symbol of oppression, but. This is a huge but where I think people have to sort of understand what I'm trying to get at. I will respect the right of a human being to wear it if they choose to do so. I think that's a different difference between someone who is more of a progressive thinker than someone who is more uh, of a fundamentalist. I may not like what you're doing, but I will never ever tell you to not do it. 
as long as you know it's 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 respectful and in, it's in you know uh, it's in your own interests and your own values and your own culture I have no problem with it yeah i suppose the problem is is when people view that and in some cases i i, I would imagine it definitely is enforced by their family and by the local community certain women like there's women who live in Vancouver who choose to wear the hijab and I'm sure for a lot of them they are fully conscious of the choice that they're making but I guess the big worry is that there it, it can be viewed as a symbol of oppression and it's really it's on a case-by-case -case basis it's impossible to know well not to get too deep down this route but just the idea is that um, when I, th I think the best way to solve this issue is to have people, until they're 18 years old, they're not allowed to choose a religion. Once they're 18 and they're, they've, they've formed a, a, a healthy enough brain to make a decision on their own. But the truth is a lot of these people will decide to do certain, I think, this is, this is, this is coming from like seeing this first. I grew up in a non-religious family, so, but from seeing like religious friends around me, you know, back in Iran, um, they only emulate the ritual, the religious ideals because their parents do. Like I see this in a lot of these, especially these younger kids who are Western educated, but they have like religious parents. And there's a part of them that's afraid, I think maybe in a, in a Freudian or a, in, a, in, a, in a psychological way to disappoint their parents by disagreeing with them. You yeah. know, there's still like this fear of, um, you know, of, 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 of disobeying my parents they know better they know what's right even though no matter i fuck up because i have like for example i'll tell you this is funny like i know a lot of these muslim kids who do cocaine they smoke weed but they don't drink alcohol i call them like oh the postmodern muslims you know so i mean that because there's nowhere in the quran that says you can't like do cocaine so this is like what, what i find very fascinating with this new generation of these kids who are trying to somehow bridge the western and eastern gap of their values because they come to the West, they get educated, they have fun, they party, they go and do Molly, and then they see they fall in love with this beautiful girl, <laughs> and whatever. And their whole life, you know, view is that the paradigm shifts, and they 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 start start questioning things. And like, okay, maybe you know, I can keep this this and that, and maybe not that. And I think that's that's where the whole area gets tricky. You know, it's 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 how do you how do you function? Um, um, as a as a as a healthy sort of um, modern forward thinking person, but also have those religious and conservative values. Yeah, it's definitely it's a it's a very very sensitive subject, and you know, I like I said I like I said earlier, I, I respect everyone's you know right to to believe and practice whatever they want as long as they're not enforcing it on me, because that's why I sort of became you know really. Uh, against religion in my country was because we were forced to pray. We were forced to read the Quran or forced to do something that we didn't want to do. And that just pushed us all away more. And I see this in our society so much nowadays where, you know, I, I, I don't think I know a single person anymore who prays, honestly. Even my religious friends. I've never seen them pray. Even though they claim to be religious, like... That's 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 the that's the weird thing. I feel a lot of times now it's just being used as a context to uh, of status to, to to raise your status within the system because people realize that if I you know act and dress a certain way or represent a certain type of value, I can get ahead in my job. 
I imagine in Iran that kind of identity is incredibly valuable and necessary over there if you want to, you know. And it's caused an identity crisis within our whole society. That's why they, I keep going back to this idea of this public and private life. They're so different. There's such a dichotomy between your public and private life that you might be having wild orgies in your house, you know, and the next day you're, you're representing, you know, this very conservative, you know, look and... Smearing the lipstick yeah. off your neck yeah. as you leave the apartment. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's crazy. And I think these types of... Um, uh, it's just like a big cauldron waiting to, to, to explode any moment, I feel. Because when you look at the sort of sexual, sexual revolution that's happening within Iran right now, this is like typical like parenting 101. The more you tell your kid to not do something, the more that they're going to do it. Yeah. So you are, it's sort of like, I think one thing I loved about my dad and his way of raising my brother and I was that he gave me my first joint. He's like, son, this is marijuana. Enjoy it, but in moderation. And apply that to everything you ever do in your life, and you'll be good. As simple as that. You know, so having that sort of open mind talk with your own dad when you're a young kid, it allowed me to dabble in the world of drugs, never, you know, really have a, a, a serious problem and uh, get to experiment and enjoy myself uh, to a point where it never really affected my life in a negative way. And I think I would, if I was a parent one day, I'd love to like, you know, at least know who my kids' dealers are so that they're getting the good shit, you know, <laughs> they're not getting some, you know, second grade yeah. stepped on. Yeah. yeah. Well, in order to control something, you have to allow it. You know, that's something that we've, that we've heard before. Um, do you think that there's a, a, a possibility that just in time with these kind of, with people in Iran being exposed to more kind of, you know, global ideals and the fact that you're saying people are praying less and this kind of, you know, private life versus public life. In time, when you think, do you think that when all of the kind of old guard die off, maybe there won't need to be a revolution. It'll kind of evolve in I mean, a kind that's of organic what, way. I think people that's what people are hoping for, honestly. Because the alternatives to the to, to what we have right now, we have a pretty shitty government, but the alternatives, honestly, they're they're probably even worse. I mean, there's not a lot of viable alternative options. So if Iran devolves into a Syria type situation it's going to be nasty. It's going to be ugly. It's going to, there's going to be a lot of sectarian violence. There's going to be a lot of infighting and people, you know, just trying to consolidate their power. So it's a terrifying prospect. And obviously nobody wants that. Nobody wants our country to devolve into a full-on civil war and chaos and madness the way that Syria has. I mean, look at Syria for the past several years and it just doesn't seem to be getting any better. You know, look at the, the waves of refugees, the people who have been misplaced. And, man, I can't even imagine. Like, you know, they're, they're getting, like, it's so hard. They're, they're escaping their country from one side, and they're being unwelcomed into, you know, into places that people don't want them, a lot of them. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation to be. And I think um, it's one thing that's very hurtful when I see people who are, like, against these refugees... Um, they don't realize that they have such a such a fucked up situation that they have no choice but to let go of their entire existence and flee to another country. Yeah, I don't think they people who have that kind of view have no idea what Syria was like before this war kind of started happening. Yeah. 
Um, maybe we could get back to your father, though. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm sorry, we're not on a tangent there. That's quite all right. Um, so what was going through your head when you first found out that he had gotten arrested? You know, to this day, I still like wake up some days and think to myself, like, how the fuck did all this happen? Is it, it just seems like a big blur, like a dream these past several months. Um, I'm still coping with it, believe it or not, in, in my own way. And I'm actually going to go to a iboga camp next week. What's iboga? You know what ayahuasca is? Yes, so yes, yes. Ayahuasca is, is from the Amazon. Uh, iboga is from Africa. Okay. And iboga... Is it DMT? Is it the same... I'm not sure. It might be. But iboga is actually even more powerful than ayahuasca, apparently. Also, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I did ayahuasca two, three weeks exactly before my father like, got arrested. So I did it at a time when... And when I came out, I was on top of the world. I felt so good and so alive. And I just felt like I was getting this, you know, amazing, fresh new start at life. And then all this shit happened. So um, hopefully this Iboga will help out next week with, you know, yeah. dealing with a bit of the trauma and, you know, all the other pain that I'm going through. I think it will. I'll definitely let you know about it when I get back. Yeah, man. I won't lie. I'm a bit terrified because, you know, Gabar Mate actually introduced me to this Iboga uh, place. Um, I actually went to Ayahuasca with him when I was down in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. So it was really good to, to, to become friends with him and... And, and, and sort of have his support and perspective during all these difficult times. Um, but yeah, when, so, so basically I was in a very spiritually strong place when all this happened. Um, so I was able to sort of deal with, with, with the situation. My brother and I especially, my brother is like a saint, man. I, you gotta meet my brother. He's like on a different level of being zened out. He has this calm, serene just very cool manner about him that he's just always in control of the situation was i'm the more emotional one i'm the more you know chaotic rock and roller he's the more grounded sort of buddhist monk of the family <laughs> a good duo for sure Did, yeah. would, would he be the type to kind of do the whole ayahuasca ceremony oh, yeah he's done it before many oh, times okay. there. so he's the one who got me into it too and you know, I always say that he reminds me of a sort of a Steve Jobs type of character. He has that, because he, he worked in like a lot of, in the corporate world for a while, you know, he was making a lot of money, but he really zinned out through the psychedelic world and he's, he's really into that stuff now. And one day, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he became like a psychedelic healer of sorts. He'd, yeah. he'd be really good at it, for sure. Yeah. But so, yeah, I was just in a really good zone. Um, Personally, so when this shit happened, um, I, my brother and I, we immediately realized that we have to sort of take control of the situation and before it devolves into something worse. I mean, which it did in a ways, but I mean, even worse than what it is now, I guess. Because we immediately realized that the government is using every um, sort of uh, weapon at their disposal to discredit our family, to hurt our family and to distance people from us. They would threaten, you know, celebrity friends of mine to don't, don't support these guys. You know, we, if you want to still act, we'll, we'll throw acid in your face. I mean, that's the kind Government of Government officials yeah. saying that kind to, of thing. To my actor friends who are like big time celebrities who have millions of followers on Instagram because they know that these people, if, they get, if there's too much support, you know, behind our family, then the government, what are they going to do? And they were able to actually shut up 
none of my celebrity friends talked. None of them. What is with the acid? It's like the most horrifying Dude, uh, fuck, dissenting. Uh, this is the thing, you know, when, you know, I, I understand where the pride in nationalism comes from, but there's a certain point where you have to step back, no matter what you believe in, and realize that there's no way of defending the people who are responsible for these types of actions. They are worse than monsters, you know, and they have to be put away. So the fact that people continue to turn a blind eye to this is just a testament at how good this evil government has been in making them afraid and apathetic. Well, it's a good coping mechanism, I suppose, when you're faced with that clear of oppression good. and fear of, like, you know, being black bagged for, you know, dissenting. I mean, my father was basically, he voluntarily went and reported. He was on holiday in the north of Iran and they told him to come in for questioning. He voluntarily went. He had nothing to hide. He had no problem. He was like, my dad was such, in such a good mood, in such a good place. And they put a bag around his head as soon as he got to the police station and was taken away. And that was the last he was ever seen. How, so did, how? how did you get the news of his death? Um, my, when he got arrested, my mother called and you know, um, informed us of the situation. And um, you know, we didn't think too much of it, again, because we also unfortunately had this idea of this, this fear of not speaking out. We, like, they told us if you speak out, you'll get fucked up, don't say anything. And my, we legitimately, it wasn't just because of that, because I honestly thought my dad is like, he's a well-respected professor who has very powerful connections. There's no fucking way anything happens to him, you know. How, what did you think was going on? Did you think it was? I just thought, to me, to, even to this day, I think my dad's, uh, the, 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 the main founder of the organization, by the way, my dad wasn't even working at this organization for like a year and a half now. I mean, he had nothing to do with the organization anymore. So that's again, another stupid thing that it's just like, anyway, so the main founder is like this really wealthy old aristocrat. And, you know, there's a lot of speculation because they, they, they've, they've done this. They've arrested, you know, um, a lot of these uh, wealthier old, you know, old money type people and just imprisoned them on no, you know, accusation, on. On, on no evidence and basically kept them in prison for a year or two until just recently like a couple of days ago this other couple got a release who had been arrested for two years on no charges whatsoever they have to put like 20 million dollars bail or something 20 million dollars yeah bail. that's insane that's like, impossible it's they it's, have to like sell off everything they had and give it to the government basically. so they did get out on bail actually yeah. That's just extortion. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. And these people know that their backs are against the wall. You know, so they're trying to take and extort as much money as they possibly can before the wall finally comes crushing down. So, you know, when my father was taken away, the, it only took like two weeks, but we honestly thought that, you know, um, things are going to work out or nothing bad is going to happen. And then when I finally, I was in New York, when I got the phone call that our father had died, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was the last, when someone called me, my, my dad's friend, one of my dad's close friends called me and said, can you sit down for a second? And I thought he was going to say mom got arrested too. That's what I honestly thought was what I was going to hear on the other end of the phone. And he said, your dad has passed away. Um, and I said, I'm going to get on the next plane. And he said, don't, it's dangerous, you'll probably get arrested. And I was like, fuck it, I have to go back home and bury my dad. So my brother and I, we both got on the plane and we got on the next flight that we could and we came. 
And then we just had to deal with all the fucking bullshit and the lies, man. We had to go and try to find his body that they had, they wouldn't give to us, you know. Uh, um, um, they wouldn't allow an independent autopsy. You know, they, there was so much, there was so much suspicious activity on their behalf of just trying to hide as much information as they could about us. They showed a video of my father's apparent death, but there's no actual footage of him dying, just him in a room, prancing around, and then next thing, they come and take his body from another adjacent room. So there's no actual proof, you know, it's, it's a video, it's like a still camera in the cell that can easily be tampered with, because it's, it's, it's not moving around, you know, they can just edit any night with any morning or whatever. Why do you think they killed him? Was it a mistake, or...? I honestly think that there was, it was a mistake, his death. I honestly think he either was overdosed with one of these truth serums they were injecting him with, or he had a heart attack. That's what I, you know, believe. But, you know, in the, in the realm of possibilities, anything is possible. He might have been, you know, you know, because there were signs of bruises on his body as well. I mean, he could have been, you know, he got hit and had it like a aneurysm or I don't know like you know anything could have happened just to clarify the official line was suicide the official they, they line was that suicide. and it's funny because they changed their own narrative a couple of times in the media first they said it was in the corner of the room that he hung himself with his own shirt and then they say he had catapulted from the bathroom like on the side of the bathroom so you know there's like different stories and different versions they didn't even stick to one story in the media themselves so I mean this all adds suspicion you know, um, you know, and, and even in the beginning, they could have just come and been like honest with us, like this is what happened. You know, we made a mistake, but they took this whole story and blew it so out of proportion, and created this insane narrative of my father being this master spy, that it just you know they they, they use these types of you know things you know for their own benefit you know and to to distract people in order to. Like, we caught him. Look yeah. at this. Look how great we are. Exactly. You know, and there's no way that they will ever admit to wrongdoing. They can't. They've gone so deep in that, you know, down that rabbit hole of, of, of fuckery that they can't back down now. So they keep attacking us. Every time harder, they attack the family. They send us threats. They harass us, you know. And, you know, when that's why we decided to leave Iran and bring mom back to Canada as soon as possible. And um, so basically, when we tried to leave at the airport, um, uh, we we were you know just laughing and like saying how crazy it's all been and what if like the end of the movie Argo and I've said yeah. this you know in a couple of interviews you know where what if the police you know they raid the place and they take us away and lo and behold an official agent came running into the lounge and said Maria Mombeni my mother's name and. They, they took her aside and took her passport, her Iranian passport, not her Canadian passport, and said, you're not allowed to leave the country. Your sons have five minutes to get on the plane. And they wanted to, like, we had, like, dogs. So, like, the dogs can't get on the plane either. Like, it was, like, crazy. They created, like, this really chaotic pandemonium sort of state where we had to, like, choose. And my mom was, like, pleading and begging with us to get on that plane. We're like, no, we're not getting on that plane, mom, without you. She's like, please, just get on and don't ever come back no matter what happens to me. And... You know, that's the thing that, that hurts me the most about this whole story. Is like, you know, what happened to my father, it's done. We have to deal with it. We have to move on. But my mother is like the most beautiful, kind, you know, wholehearted woman in the world who doesn't deserve any of this. 
And then to be separated from our sons and to selflessly, you know, make us have to decide and make that hard decision to leave her alone, it, it breaks my heart. It, it, you know, it fills me with rage that, you know, that why does our family have to suffer like this? After everything we've done, after being, you know, the good human beings that we've been our whole life, I mean, we fucked up like anybody else, but, you know, generally speaking, especially my parents, they're like fucking saints, they're such good people. I mean, you can ask any one of our friends or my friends, they, they see my parents as their own parents. Because my, my parents had started this big community, they would take like 60, 70 people out camping and outdoors. It's a huge group of people. And where my mom would cook for everyone, my dad was the leader of the camp. And, you know, so a lot of people looked up to my parents like their own. The sweetest people in the world. And for us to be separated like this has been crazy. So, you know, we got the Canadian government involved. You know, the prime minister and the foreign minister have tweeted about this. They've talked about this in the media extensively. The foreign minister Freeland calls my mom, you know, every now and then to see how she's doing. And, you know, other MPs have helped out as well. But, you know, since Canadians and Iranians don't have uh, diplomatic ties, you know, they're, they're, they're working through, you know, different channels of communication. But it's been very difficult. And... You know, unfortunately, the people who are running this show against my family in Iran, the intelligence unit of the IRGC, they don't give two fucks. They've even said it to my mom when they raided our house again, like a couple of weeks ago. Like, don't think your foreign friends are powerful enough to, like, you know, get you out of here. Which obviously means that they have been actually getting the, the message, which is actually pretty good. It means, you know, I, I still don't think they have the balls to... To, to do anything to my mom at this point because we've, we've magnified this story so much so for this very reason to keep her safe but at the same time we're dealing with a bunch of lunatics so you never know you know and and i and i've been told like actually directly that if i go back i'm going to get arrested and taken away but i don't give a fuck like if it gets to a point where i don't feel like my mother is coming out i'll go back home whatever the risk may be to, to get her out because, like, I can't be separated from her for, for too much longer. She doesn't deserve this at all. How common do you think this is, people getting, like, disappeared in Iran? What would... It seems like your father literally did nothing aside from, you know, camping and, you know, filming. Like, of course, they would they would take the... Vi like, yes, if you're going to go spy, you bring your children and film the whole thing. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's just... Um... Sorry, what was the question? Uh, how common do you think that this is? Oh, for, like, well, how, many, how many people has this, has this, this happened yeah, I think, to? I, I don't know. If, I've said this before, but, you know, during my father's funeral, many mothers came and, you know, sharing their stories of how their sons had disappeared. Not only did they disappear, but they were taken away, killed, and buried in an unknown location. And God knows how many of these unknown kids are buried in some unknown grave in the middle of nowhere in Iran. That's the sad reality of our country that we keep, you know, uh, glossing over with all these other sort of good things that our, our, our country and our culture has. But until we deal with this evil root and find a way to, you know, take it out of the ground, um, I don't think anything is going to happen, unfortunately. And right now it's... This is the problem, like what you were mentioning earlier, with the hard, hard, the more the West sort of intervenes at the same time, the hard, hardliners get more um, uh, puffy about this whole operation about, look, you know, the West is trying to, you know, 
uh, disrupt our society and our culture, we should unite. And it always, like, people, there's this really stupid sense of pride within our culture that it, it shows up at the worst moments. Instead of actually supporting people who are in need and in help, um, like in Iran, you see it so many times, man, when people, some poor man or woman is being beaten to death by the police in the streets, and people who are passerbys are just like, just walk on by. Turn it off. Yeah. Turn it off. Either they film it and put it on Instagram or... Oh my fucking God. And, you know, they just turn a blind eye to it. It's so fucked up. It's so disturbing mm. that this is what our sort of culture has degraded to. I, and I know a lot of people are going to fucking hate me, you know, for saying all this stuff, but I, and I don't want to generalize. I mean, there's a lot of fucking good in our country. I'm sure you've seen many of these videos of people who've traveled to Iran and who've said Iran is one of the greatest countries they've ever been to. And all of that is true as well. We have very beautiful people, very hospitable, very loving and caring. But there is a very big underlying problem within the country that needs to be fixed and healed in order for us to sort of move on and become better as a whole. Do you think there's hope for that? Do you think that it'll happen within your lifetime? You know, the problem is that... Um, there's, there's gonna, it's not just a political problem, there's a cultural problem, and we need to evolve as a culture as well, as a people. Politically, there's always someone that can come and sway people to vote for them, but until we decide to become better, better as individuals and stop acting like wolves, um, then, then, then we'll be on the right path, you know. Um, I've always been an optimist my whole life and always hoped for the best. But, you know, honestly, I, I cherish and love the freedoms that I'm able to enjoy over here in Canada. And I wouldn't trade this for the world. There's no fucking way that I'll ever go back to a world where I can't be who I absolutely want to be. And this is why I love Canada so much. You know, it's such a great country to be living in and to be a part of. Um, yeah, we have our problems in Canada, you know, Canadian politics and whatever. It's, it, but it's like nothing, you know, compared to 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 to, to these crazy third world countries. It kind of puts it in perspective when people, you know, like I'm not a big fan of Trudeau personally, right. but it puts it in perspective when people kind of complain. No, people about absolutely him. have to exercise their rights in order to prevent it that shit happening. You have to go out here and vote be involved in your local neighborhood and communities. It's very important. Like, you know, once I figure out where I'm going to settle down long term, I'm going to make make it, you know, uh, an active part of my life to be involved mm -hmm. um, very locally. And because and, 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 that's where real change and help, you know, can happen. Yeah. And maybe hopefully from there it can spread on. Um, speaking of that, you mentioned in the interview that I first heard you on that you at one point were thinking about starting your own podcast in, in Farsi. Is right. that something that's still kind of, you know, on the cards, given the fact that, you know, these kids over in Iran, even if they can't officially reach it, if they got word of it, that could that could be huge. That could be some if it's not happening over there right now, is that something that you would consider doing? kind of give lens to this, you know, rising Iranian counterculture? It's definitely something I'm considering. Um, and I'd love to 
you know, uh, get involved with because there's so many important taboo subjects that need to be discussed within our culture. Um, whether it's about sex or women's rights or equality and um, to uh, much more simple things. There's just a lot of subjects that have really haven't been, excuse me, haven't been thought out in, in publicly. You know, there hasn't been a public sort of platform or discourse on these subjects for us. I mean, there's a few people now who are beginning to, like I've seen talk about these things, but um, it's maybe, maybe that could be a, a way for me to give back to the community. I don't know, I maybe won't even do one in English, I don't know. I but, do both. Yeah. You know, yeah. But it's, uh, I was telling Chris, you know, the reason I couldn't do it anymore was because if I talked about all the subjects that I wanted to, I would have got arrested. <laughs> so Well, now, yeah, you, now. <laughs> that bridge has <laughs> fallen. Yeah. yeah. I suppose given your kind of current situation, though, it might not be wise to kind of rock the boat with things. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to wait till you know, my mom gets out and, you know, all is well, and then I'll think about these things. Yeah. You know, it's crazy because, you know, me and you, we communicate through Signal, that app, and we were talking about apps earlier, and when I was in Iran, I literally was like, I felt like being in the spine because I had like a couple of burner phones and I had to go to a rooftop and talk secretly to the to this and that person and this, this like politician and that Canadian government and that, you know, UN human rights official. And then I'd have to like always watch where I was leaving and see the cars that were chasing me. I would write down their plate numbers, you know. So it was just like, you know, I got, you know, Mug, not mug. I got like uh, they they bumped into me a couple of these plain clothes officials. Like we're watching you, so you know they had raided our home. They bugged everything. So every morning I would wake up and you know whenever whether I was like you know naked in the shower or like you know making jokes to them or making coffee or whatever. I was like just having like a, I was just talking out loud. <laughs> I can have fun with it, you know. Yeah. In your own, yeah. Do Do you think they have a presence here at all? Like, do you think that? Do you think that no, but it's funny. You know, when I came and I came to the airport, the, the Canadian officials they wanted to debrief debrief us when we landed in Vancouver, and I was like, "Oh, thank God we're in Canada, where our phone calls aren't monitored anymore." And the guy was like, eh, don't be so sure about that." I hope he was joking, uh, but like, mm. you never know. You know what I mean? So, well, I'm going to keep using Signal for the yeah. time being. No, I mean it's it's wiser to you know, we publicly. Uh, willingly give out so much information and I'm and that's a whole subject for another time that we can chat about but I'm like I despise like you know the way that everything we're doing is being used against ourselves as to be another statistic for some marketing campaign or oh man it's just don't even get me started on that yeah, subject yeah, we'll yeah. leave that for another time sure sure uh, where can people find you then um, they can just go to King Ram K-I-N-G-R-A-A-M and that handle everywhere is on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter Great. Um, to stay up to date with all the latest info. But yeah, man, thanks for having me today. Uh, it was a cool chat. Yeah, man. I appreciate you being on Cheers. the show. So yeah. Cheers. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Ram, whose story, as it continues to unfold, I will be updating here. Currently, he's living in Berlin, making some pretty cool music that I would follow him on Instagram if you're interested in hearing. Um... He's a really great guy, and I wish him the best. In other news, we are currently working on getting this podcast up and running on all the usual RRS feed-based podcast apps. The goal is that by episode three, our catalog will be up and available on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get podcasts. So 
once we are up there, feel free to leave us a review, because that is probably the best way of getting the word out to new people if you're finding the show interesting. Um, so far, the best and pretty much the only constructive criticism I've received has had to do with uh, audio quality. And I must admit, the first two episodes were definitely recorded on my cell phone. But now that we are firmly set up here in our Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM studio, there should be a real increase in the audio quality of our interviews to come. Speaking of which, I've got three interviews lined up in the next few weeks, so be sure to look out for more elsewhere content in the months ahead. Um, if you want to reach out to the show, you can follow me on Instagram at EastVandElsewhere. You can shoot me an email at EastVandElsewhere at gmail.com. You can also follow our delightful sound engineer Cody at BitCrack on SoundCloud. Um, and you can visit us on our website, EastVandElsewhere.com. We're going to play you out tonight with some music by tonight's guest. The track is called The Hunter off of King Rom's album, Songs of the Wolves. I hope everything is going good for you guys out there. Catch you next month. Oh, so-